Welcome to another Lost Ladies of Lit mini episode. I'm Kim Askew here with my co-host, Amy Helms. Hey, everyone. Kim, you and I both know, and anyone out there listening who considers themselves a writer knows as well, that for as exhilarating and fulfilling as writing can be, it can also be difficult and demoralizing, which is why sometimes you need a bit of cheerleading. That's right. And who better to serve as your cheerleaders than some of history's most famous and successful women writers? Women who have gone through many of the same ups and downs, had similar bouts of self-doubt, and received those soul-crushing rejection letters we've all gotten, only to triumph in the end. All this encouragement is actually compiled in a beautiful book called Literary Ladies' Guide to the Writing Life. It mines the life and musings of famous women authors on subjects such as finding your literary voice, conquering inner demons, and how to deal with writer's block. If Literary Ladies Guide rings a bell to you, that's because the author of this new audiobook edition is also the creator of the Literary Ladies Guide website. Nava Atlas started the site back in 2012 at the time of her book's original publication. And since then, her site has grown into one of the web's most comprehensive resources on women's literature. So I remember finding Nava's website not long after we started our podcast, and I subscribed to all of the stuff, the newsletter, the social media. Nava is constantly writing in-depth pieces, and she often has guest writers. This site has a really great catalog of writers' bios, book reviews, and literary analysis. So go check it out when you're done with this episode if you're not already familiar with it. In addition to her Literary Ladies Guide to the Writing Life, she is also a visual artist specializing in artists' books, a medium that uses the structure of a book as its inspiration. You can check out Nava's limited edition artist books at navaatlasart.com. Nava, welcome to the show. We are so glad you're here today. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Tell us a little bit about the genesis of this book and your website, because I know it kind of came about in tandem, right? How, How did it become such a passion for you? It actually started a few years before then when you said that I do limited edition artist books and my specialty is about women's lives and women's issues. I decided to go back to graduate school at a slightly older age, let's say. And one of the projects was to put together a small printed book. And I decided to do kind of an inspirational book about how wonderful it is to be a woman writer. And when I delved a little bit more deeply into it and got below that surface, I realized that what was really interesting about the women that I chose to focus on was not like, you know, rah-rah, you know, popped out of the womb, fully formed as a writer, but how they overcame their struggles and their obstacles. So it became a much richer and much deeper project. And, you know, to make a fairly long story a lot shorter, then we come to 2012. And I come out with this book, The Literary Lady's Guide to the Writing Life. I don't have a website. I don't have social media. I don't have the newsletter. I did everything really backwards. So I started a fledgling website, and it really has just grown slowly and wonderfully over the years. But it really started to take off around the end of the year 2016. Because that's when I think people really tapped into the fact that women's voices should be heard more. I really saw it. It almost went from death spiral to a really thriving website almost overnight. Wow, that's amazing. That's cool that you were kind of able to see the cultural shift through, you know, who was coming to your site. That's great. Absolutely. I love that you mentioned about, you know, 
these writers all started off just like you and me with insecurities. And that's one of the things I love about your book is that you read it and you think, wow, they all did it. They started with no connections and they did it. Absolutely. I mean, that was the beauty of researching this book is to discover that these authors that we absolutely revere had the same issues that we do. I mean, just for an example, just comes to the top of my head is Edith Wharton, who you think with all her wealth and privilege and background that she'd have all these connections. And no, she was one of the most insecure people. And you know, an interesting anecdote is you've heard the expression keeping up with the Joneses. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That was her family. She was Edith Newbold Jones. And so they were a, a family who also had a you know huge mansion in New York City and also Newport, Rhode Island. Mm-hmm. So keeping up with the Joneses really was about Edith Wharton's parents. When she had her first books published, she barely could believe it. Who, me? Little me gets my book published. They're not going to laugh me out of the bookstore. So I thought that was just great. You know, her wealth and privilege did not shield her from feeling really insecure and doubting herself greatly. I'm glad you brought her up because I actually was going to see if you could read the little section from your book that's called uh, Mumsy Does Not Approve. Yes, Mumsy Does Not Approve. And neither did her first husband and neither did all her friends. They thought it was really not proper for a woman who started out her life as Edith Newbold Jones to be in a, you know, writing was considered like a trade. So it was improper. Anyway, Mumsy does not approve. My first attempt at age 11 was a novel which began, Oh, how do you do, Mrs. Brown, said Mrs. Tompkins. If only I'd known you were going to call, I should have tidied up the drawing room. Timorously, I submitted this to my mother, and never shall I forget the sudden drop of my creative frenzy when she returned it with the icy comment, drawing rooms are always tidy. So that was from her memoir, A Backward Glance, which was published in 1934. I just can picture that scene so clearly. She just got crushed. Yeah, way to be literal. Yeah. Yeah. The opposite (laughs) of that story is the wonderful poet Gwendolyn Brooks. And her mother, when she saw what her daughter was writing, she became like a, you know, you call a stage mom. She became a poetry mom. She would schlep Gwendolyn very shy, you know, in her preteens and teens to all these literary events in Chicago, showing off her daughter's work. And, you know, Gwendolyn was probably just mortified, but, you know, it worked because she learned how to network. She learned it is important to know the right people and to be able to show your work to the right people, including Langston Hughes, for example, and to get a leg up in this very competitive field. Was there anything else that sort of surprised you or inspired you when you were first putting this book together that you didn't expect necessarily? Oh, yes. There was something that was very interesting and surprising to me was that in days past, there were so many more well-paying outlets for writers who are cutting their teeth, who are honing their skills, because that was the form of entertainment. It was reading. And so there were so many magazines, so many um, periodicals, newspapers, and a lot of them carried what was called serials. You'd start almost building your novel in a periodical. So whether it was Saturday Evening Post or the local newspaper, that is how they refined their skills. And also a few of them, and I'm sure that's true today too, started out as journalists. 
or, you know, you have to write clean copy. You have to do it by a certain deadline. You can't dawdle. You can't procrastinate. And in fact, most of these women did not go to college. There was no MFA programs in writing back then. So how they developed their skills was by writing. And what was really nice was they got paid for it at the same time. That also was a real confidence builder when they could see that they could actually earn money by their pen. We have the internet today, which of course offers a lot of outlets for people to write, but doesn't pay well. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's certainly a good exercise to be able to write and to see your work in writing and have other people read it, but it does not really pay well. And, you know, when you think of what the options were 50, 60, 100 years ago for women as far as professions, there just weren't that many. You know, a lot of women felt forced to go into teaching, like Louisa Alcott, she was supposed to become a teacher. And she said, well, I just don't like it. I don't want to be a teacher. So I'm going to write and I'm going to prove that I can do it and make money at it. Not that there's anything wrong with teaching. I'm just saying that it was just one of the very few options that were open to women. Right, right. And in addition to the big names in English literature, you also included some authors we've featured in previous episodes, um, thinking of Edna Ferber and Zora Neale Hurston. How did you determine which authors you were going to include? Well, that's a really good question. I looked for authors that did a lot of interviews that had autobiographies. So who did a lot of interviews was Willa Cather, who hated the press, who hated publicity, and yet she did a billion interviews. <laughs> um, kind of a love-hate relationship. Um, letters, diaries, things like that, so that I delved into their actual first-person writing. And not all, you know, not a lot of authors do that as well as their main writing. So that's really what helped me narrow it down. It's interesting to read this book and think, okay, certain things about the writing life just really don't change. Can you talk about some of the things you find so relatable from these great names and maybe talk about some of the ways things have changed? Well, I feel like women don't have to hide behind a pseudonym like they used to. In this book, one of the main authors is George Sand. Who is a French author and her, her, she had a very long name, Aurora Dupin, something. And then, of course, there was George Eliot, who was Marianne Evans. There's Charlotte Bronte and her sisters, who were Currer Bell and uh, Acton Bell. I think they kind of made up those first names. Um, I find that the things that have not changed are, you know, all the obstacles that we've been talking about. And then some, I feel like those are still quite universal. The imposter syndrome and feeling like, who am I to think that I can write the great American or the great whatever novel? So that certainly has not changed. You mentioned Willa Cather. I know she had an interesting start to her writing career, right? Oh, yes. This was really very interesting. And it's sort of a little out of the box because she was headed toward medical school, which was really unusual for women in her time. And her classmates appreciated what a good writer she was, and they secretly submitted an essay of hers to a local publication. And when she saw it, she was hooked. She said, you know, all you have to do is see those black marks in print, and you just never want to look back. I love that story. I don't think I knew that. I don't know if you did, Amy, but that's so great. And then I, I loved the anecdote about Octavia Butler and what inspired her. Oh, yes. So um, this is kind of a famous story. When she was 12 or so, she saw 
a really horrible sci-fi movie on TV called Devil Girl from Mars. <laughs> and she said to herself, geez, I could write a better story than that. And then she paused and she thought, geez, anybody could write a better story than that. (laughs) And interesting too about Octavia Butler, she mentioned in some of the writings that I have in the book that she sometimes got her ideas years or decades before she was ready to actually do them. So she said she got the idea for Kindred. I think she was a teenager, but I think she recognized herself that she wasn't ready as a writer to tackle that very difficult kind of story. So I thought that's interesting because sometimes, you know, we have a seed of an idea, we start doing it, and we just sort of wonder, why isn't it working? And I think rather than, you know, either beating ourselves over the head with it, or just abandoning it altogether, go back in a few years, you're at a different level of your life, you can see it with a different perspective. And I just love that I love revisiting works that I put in the proverbial drawer. That gives me some hope. I've got a book that I started before I had, I have a four-year-old, before I got pregnant and haven't finished it. I hope that when I go back to it, I feel like it's worth revisiting. Yeah, it's, it's hard to, you know, it's hard to write with what I call mom brain. I think when I went back to graduate school, my kids were teenagers and I felt like, you know, I, I have to snap out of this mom brain syndrome and it was really, it was really quite worthwhile. Um, you have a whole chapter on rejection. I think um, Madeline LaEngle was one who really went through the fire for a while, right? Yeah, I think she herself said that you could have papered her whole house with rejection letters. And her most iconic book, A Wrinkle in Time, was rejected over 40 times. And she and her agent pretty much had given up. All of the editors who looked at it, some of them really loved it, but they said it's too dark and complex for children. So we know that, you know, she must have been kind of the, uh, the shoulders that let's say someone like JK Rowling stands on and other people who, I mean, now middle grade books, I mean, pre middle grade books are pretty dark and complex because we live in dark and complex times and children really understand that. So. With Madeline Langle, I think number 41 was Ferrer Strauss-Giroux and it's sort of one of those situations where somebody knew someone who knew someone, but it was almost never published, A Wrinkle in Time. And then once it was published, it won so many awards. There's millions of copies in print. It's been translated to so many languages. And interestingly, it's also one of the most banned books of all time. Wow. Which I think is a little ironic because she herself was a devout Christian. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that is ironic. Yeah. It just makes me think when you're sending these books out to editors, that doesn't mean the recipient is the voice of God who reads it and decides it's not for them. Maybe they didn't understand it. Maybe they just didn't connect and they're not the ideal reader for it. But I think a lot of people get a rejection letter and think it sucks. What I sent them sucks. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right, <laughs> you know? right. Yeah. Um, I think I mentioned in, in the introduction to this, there was a website called rejectioncollection.com. I don't think it exists anymore. But the authors, the rejected authors or writers, I should say, really just were so angry and upset when they get a rejection that was just mild and bland, like not right for our list at this time. It really would send them into a complete tailspin. But, you know, I also mentioned that being rejected for something you write, you feel like you're being rejected. It's like these little chunks of your soul. Somebody is telling you, 
it's not good enough, that means you're not good enough. Yeah, yeah. to your point, especially when you already have imposter syndrome. So you're like, right. oh, I'm really not that good. Writers are a sensitive bunch. That's why we're writers. Yeah. Yep. I thought it was interesting too. I think that was your chapter on how they find their inspiration. Some of the ladies had conflicting advice about this. So Willa Cather was basically telling people, write what you know. But then Charlotte Bronte, her attitude was, well, what I know is completely limited. I have this very circumscribed life. So if I only write what I know, it's going to be the same book over and over. I don't have that much to draw on, which I thought was interesting. Yeah. So, it, you know, it's a very individual situation. With Willa Cather, she had a unique situation where she was, I think she was raised in Virginia and her family moved out to Nebraska to the Plains where there were a lot of immigrants. So she got to know a really very different population and she worked a lot of it into her wonderful novels like Oh Pioneers, for example, and my uh, Ant- Antonia and Antonia, I never know how to pronounce that, was you're right. Charlotte Bronte and her sisters grew up in a small village, Haworth, in uh, a rectory. Her, their father was the village rector. And so what did they know? What they knew probably came from all the wonderful books that they read. And I think that the only time Charlotte really ever traveled was to the school where she and Emily went to kind of miserably in Belgium. And later on her honeymoon with her late marriage with um, Arthur Bell Nichols. But other than that, they were at home with each other. That's yeah. it. Yeah, for women especially, you know, write what you know. Men, you know, in the past especially could go off and do all the adventures and have all the experiences that weren't accessible to women. So, you know, they couldn't. If they just wrote what they know, they wouldn't always have a lot to, to write about. So this book, it's been reissued, updated. It came out in 2011. And then... I really wanted to update it because I wanted to add Octavia Butler, Gwendolyn Brooks. And what I really felt was a mistake of mine in the first place was not adding Zora in the get-go. So um, it had already gone out of print and my agent took it around and publishers really do not like reissued books. It's just a thing. But... Just oddly enough, Blackstone Publishing, which is a big audiobook publisher, really liked it and they wanted to bring it out. And I just feel so honored that one of the really eminent readers, narrators, um, Robin Miles, read the book. And I don't often say this about my own work because I'm really very hard on myself, but I feel like, wow, I actually wrote that. She makes me sound really good. (laughs) So I feel like, you know, the production of it is really wonderful. And when people order it from Audible, they get the PDF for free, the visual PDF. They can download that for free and follow along or or just look at that. So you can see it as well. Listeners, it features so many beautiful photographs, black and white photographs, sepia tone of these authors, a lot of which I hadn't seen. You know, you kind of always see the same go-to photos or illustrations. Yes, especially when you see everything on the web. But I was fortunate enough because I was writing the book to really go to archives. And that's why I have photos and illustrations that people don't see over and over again. Yeah, you can tell. And it's packaged in a way that's really readable. It's got little just bite-sized chunks with sidebars. And I think in this era of podcasting, the fact that it is bits 
of information. It's almost like listening to a podcast. So if you're in between weeks waiting for our new episode to come out, this is a perfect thing to supplement. Uh, Yeah. Oh, perfect. I love that. (laughs) I know you're always seeking out contributors for your Literary Ladies Guide site. So how can our listeners help you out if they're interested in contributing? Well, we were talking about how writing for the internet doesn't pay well. Well, here's the case in point, because, you know, the site doesn't really make all that much money. It really makes enough money to sustain itself. But I do feel like I can at least pay an honorarium to people who contribute. There is um, an about section with a drop down menu that has a section called write for us. And I have a wish list of authors Probably, well, anytime I cross an author off that list, a new one comes on because I'm constantly learning about authors that I never heard of before. And really, one of my favorite things about the site is how much I can continue to learn. It's just so fascinating. So yeah, the drop down menu, write for us and just go straight to contact me and I'll direct people to my wish list. It's not just the biographies. It's also like you said, there's analyses, there's reviews. And one of the fun things about the site is that I also have a filmography because we don't realize how many films and also stage plays have been based on classic authors' works. That's right. Yeah, it's a really comprehensive site. And, And, you know, we have a lot of listeners that are English professors, academics, biographers who are doing research on their own lost ladies. So I'm sure that they would have things to contribute. We love everything that you've been doing to keep the legacies of women writers alive. Your website is such a great resource, and this book is a beautiful aid also to hopefully inspire future generations of women writers. And we just want to thank you so much for joining us to talk about it all today. Well, thank you for having me. I really enjoyed it. So that's all for today's episode. Tune in next week when our guest Maud Newton joins us to discuss a lost lady of 1950s pulp fiction. Oh, I want to cue the Quentin Tarantino music. Oh, totally. Our theme song was written and recorded by Jenny Malone and our logo was designed by Harriet Grant. Lost Ladies of Lit is produced by Kim Askew and Amy Helm.